Have you ever played Chutes and Ladders? The idea is that each player takes turns rolling the dice, or in this case, spinning the spinner, and advances squares accordingly. There's a problem and a promise embedded in the game. The problem is landing on a square with a chute that can set you back several squares, if not half the board squares. But there's also a promise of the ladders. Landing on a square with a ladder gives you the ability to jump ahead, skipping over squares in order to advance beyond your opponents. But when you roll the dice or spin the spinner, you never know where you're going to land, on a chute or on a ladder. I actually really haven't thought about this game in years, but it just keeps coming to mind as I think about how life feels these days. Like the game, especially these last couple of years, life feels fickle and unpredictable, up and down, some days feeling like we get a boost, get ahead and climb up a ladder, and other days like we've slid far back down the proverbial chute. But while there's this turbulent unpredictability to life on one hand, on the other hand, I sometimes live like I have some control over outcomes based on how well I behave, where good acts and hard work earn me certain advancements or recognitions or rewards, and bad behavior brings me this much-deserved setback or punishment. That's why it's so frustrating when bad things happen to us despite our good efforts, or when bad things happen to people in our lives for no good reason. In moments of deep pain, we tell ourselves, the world can't possibly work this way, can it? It's too senseless. But in moments of pride and joy, how quick are we to assume we've earned the right to such fate? And that is a segment I like to call the theology of shoots and ladders. I actually Googled that phrase to see if anyone else had given as much thought to this as I have. And I found a couple great blog posts that I think capture the emotions of a shoots and ladders game. It's written by a child psychologist who's reflecting on playing the game during one of his sessions. Here's what he says. I just spent the last 20 minutes trying to console a heartbroken child. After a productive therapy session, we were wrapping up our time together with a game of shoots and ladders. He was winning and could barely contain his excitement as he moved closer to the finish line. Then, on his last run, he landed on the dreaded 87th square. A picture of a child balancing precariously on a ledge, reaching for a jar of cookies, presumably without permission. This meant my client had to move his game piece backward nearly 65 spaces, effectively ruining his chances of reaching the finish line first. He begged for another chance. I shook my head and gently reminded him of the importance of playing fair and following the rules. Tears were shed, cards were flung, words that would make a sailor blush poured from my preschool age client's mouth. And that just kind of feels like life in a nutshell sometimes, doesn't it? Maybe you're not the cursing kind, but I'll bet you have days or moments or seasons that are just throw your hands in the air I quit kind of moments. The prophet and writer Isaiah, whose book is found in our Old Testament, had words for a people experiencing the shoots and ladders of life. Isaiah's prophetic ministry began around the same time the Assyrian Empire began to threaten Israel. And around the same time, King Uzziah, faithful king over Judah for 50 years, had died. This was definitely an oh shoot moment for Israel. Get it? C-H-U-T. You get it. I just want to make sure you were listening. 
But with the death of Uzziah, weakness bled into Israel's culture. There was a disregard for ethical living that was magnified because of the threat of the Assyrian Empire. And in the, in the subsequent years, Israel would experience crisis after crisis. Decision and attempts to ensure Israel's survival by leaders like Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, were ultimately compromises that led to their destruction. So in his writings, Isaiah reflects on these days. But Isaiah is also given a vision by God for what's to come. A vision that would translate into words that the people of Israel would need to hear hundreds of years into the future, when they would be in an even more challenging time. A time of exile in Babylon, driven completely out from their homeland. These are the words found in second half of Isaiah, and these same words we need in our times of ups and downs. For the last few weeks, we've been teaching through a series we're calling Promised Land, using the words in Isaiah, words for people living in exile, to speak to us in our context today. A time where our typical ways of living and making sense of the world are being totally uprooted, where the ways that we've ordered our life and attempted to bring about predictability, security, perhaps with our hard work and good intentions, isn't working. And so we're asking, where is God in seasons like this? Seasons we might call exile. Maybe you're experiencing a literal exile right now, either by way of a forced or voluntary absence from your country or home. What a frightening, uncertain, uprooting time. Or perhaps your exile feels more metaphorical. Maybe yours is rooted in an identity search or for a search for beating or a lens of understanding your world. Maybe it's a sense of loss or fear in the face of an uncertain future or disrupted sense of stability. Over the past couple weeks, we've been dropping in on various chapters in the second half of Isaiah to discover God's promises in the face of the problems that we face. We found that when we're weary in the in-between time, God promises strength. When we're discouraged by the unfairness of the world, God promises justice. When we're disillusioned by hypocrisy and bad religion, God promises the real thing, relationship with him. And in times of trouble, God offers deliverance. But today, we'll discover that in our longing, God promises himself. So today we find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 44, and we'll discover words for people who find themselves landing on squares with shoot after shoot and longing for a ladder to lift them up. God has a promise for them and for us. There's so much imagery and power in these words. I want you to see and hear them for yourself. So take these next few minutes to watch and listen to the words of Isaiah 44. Listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in your mother's womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on thirsty land and streams on dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your children and my blessing on your descendants. 
They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like trees beside flowing streams. Some will say, I belong to the Lord. Others will call themselves by the name of Jacob. Still others will write on their hand, the Lord's, and will take the name of Israel. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and the last, and apart from me, there is no God. All who make idols, they are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who praise them are blind, they are ignorant to their own shame. Who creates a god or casts an idol which can profit nothing? A man may cut down a cedar, or perhaps he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a tree and lets the rain nourish it. Then it becomes fuel for the man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of the wood from the tree he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal, he roasts his meat and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, ah, I am warm. But from the rest of the wood he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, save me, for you are my god. Such people know nothing, they understand nothing, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one stops to think, or has the discernment to say, half of it I used for fuel, I baked bread over its coals, I roasted meat, and I ate. Should I use the rest of it to make a detestable thing? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Instead, he feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot save himself, or even say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you, you are my servant. Israel, I will not forget you. I have blotted out your offenses like a cloud and your sins like the morning mist. Sing for joy, you heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, you earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests, and all your trees, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and is glorified in Israel. From Isaiah chapter 44. The word of the Lord. Did you hear a promise? What about a problem? In these chapters, there's what I've come to call a promise, problem, promise sandwich. Actually, that third part is a little more like an antidote, but that would be harder to call a sandwich. So for now, we'll call it a promise. So let's take a look at the opening promise in verses one through six. But now listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, 
and who will help you? Do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. This first verse reminds us of the original audience of this passage, which is the nation of Israel. God wanted to remind Israel that their status as God's people remains unchanged. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. For there is nothing you have done or could do to throw off course your status as the children of God, who have been known and formed since beginning before you were born. Before you had any ability to do anything to try or impress or create a mess, you just were. Because of who you are, you are mine, and I have chosen you. I imagine this is God's way of kind of like a parent saying, not only do I love you, I like you. And then in verse 3, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. This vision that God has instructed Israel to give to the people of Israel has this before and after effect. Before you are longing, after I will bring you fulfillment. You are thirsty, I will quench your thirst. You are barren and dry, I will give you streams of new life. You are unsure and afraid. You stand in the promise of my blessing. Before, there was no clear view of the future. After, I will root you like a tree next to living water. I am your future. To illustrate these first four verses, let me share an example. Andrew and I recently became subscribers to the Magnolia Network because, you know, we need one more subscription. Well, if you're into home renovation shows, Magnolia Network has all the shows that you didn't know you needed. Well, in one 45-minute episode of a show, you can see transformation happen before your eyes. You know that moment that happens towards the beginning of the episode where the homeowners do a walkthrough of the house with the designer and they're standing in the space and the designer's like, there's so much potential. And as a viewer, you're like, but is there? And that's when they've done it. As a viewer, they've hooked you because you just have to know what that designer saw. And sometimes you get a glimpses, like the architectural sketches overlaid on the old space. My favorite ones are the ones that are animated and the walls just disappear and an open concept kitchen into living room that is perfect for entertaining space emerges. It's the old and new overlaid atop each other. This vision of Isaiah's is a bit like that. There's a before, which is the current state, and the promise of an after, which is what to, what's to come. This is the promise of new life being ushered in. Water in dry ground transforms the landscape. God's spirit will transform Israel. God is promising ultimately to be an anchor for our souls. Let's continue with this promise in verse five. Some will say, I belong to the Lord. Others will call themselves by the name of Jacob. Still others will write on their hand the Lord's and will take the name Israel. So the hand is actually understood to be one of the organs of personal action in the ancient world. 
So to write on your hand is to symbolize personal commitment and active life in and with God. It's an act of mutuality, a joining of hands of sorts, where the Lord reaches out and we're invited to clasp our hands with our Creator. And in the joining of hands, something new happens. A bit like what happens when a designer and a homeowner work together on a renovation. This is what God is doing. And it occurs to me how dignifying this is. This is not an all-powerful God forcing a certain way of life onto anyone. Even here in the pages of the Old Testament, it's a dance that's described. Not a hierarchical, tyrannical God asserting their purposes. Israel has free will to respond to God's promises. Israel has the choice to join hands with God in bringing about a new future. And verse 6 says this, This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Here we're being reassured of who is making this promise. God is indeed all-powerful. God originates from nothing but pre-exists all things that have ever existed and will exist until the very end. The presence of God encompasses all that ever has been and will be. And this God promises himself. This is the promise of God's self. God's promising himself here and he's making a case that he's worthy of our trust. It's not only a glimpse of the promise, it's a reminder of who is making this promise to us. So this promise is one of identity and sustainment through God alone. But along with this promise must come some honest talk about a problem, chief among all other problems. We might be tempted to skip over this part. Maybe you felt that shift in the reading a little bit ago. We're drawn into these passages with the invitation of a promise. And all of a sudden, we're in the fire with some intense words and intense imagery. Picking up in verse 9. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol, which can profit nothing? And then jumping to verse 14. We have a little story of a man. It says, he cuts down cedars, or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest, or planted a pine, and the rain made it grow. It's used as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread, but he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me. You are my god. If life is anything like a game of shoots and ladders, Idols are the things in our lives that are parading themselves as a ladder, promising an accelerated, sure path to get what we want, but is ultimately a shoot setting us back. Of all the pitfalls in Israel's journey in exile, idolatry was the greatest and most pervasive. 
Idol worship seems kind of like a silly thing to us in the way that it's described in these verses. I mean, we don't do much whittling of gods out of wood in our culture today. Or do we? See, there's this universal human experience that's being described here and is at the center of what the Bible would call idolatry. Longing. Which brings us to our problem. Central to the human experience is that we are creatures who are never really satisfied. Here's how Ronald Rollheiser, author of The Holy Longing, describes it. It's no easy task to walk this earth and find peace. Inside of us, it would seem something is at odds with the very rhythm of things, and we are forever restless, dissatisfied, frustrated, and aching. We are so overcharged with desire that it's hard to come to simple rest. We tend to think of our longing or our restlessness, dissatisfaction, I think as more occasional that happens maybe only in the parts of challenging uh, that are most challenging in life. But Rollheiser makes the case that it's in fact the opposite. We're actually more restless than restful, more dissatisfied than satisfied. That is our starting place as humans. We are a thirsty, dry ground, longing to be filled people. Most of my life, I kind of have intuited this to be true. I've felt that pang of deep longing, an insatiable desire for something more that I can never seem to name. I see that same truth already playing out as I watch my kids grow up. I reached out earlier this week to my aunt who raised four girls, my cousins, all quite close in age. I'm feeling starved for some kind of input and help in raising my two kids who are relatively close in age and feeling the many challenges that that, that brings with them being still so young. In my initial text to her, I said something about my two-year-old daughter's black hole of needs. I was being a little dramatic about it, but it occurred to me after writing those words actually how clarifying that was to what I was feeling. Like there's never enough that I can do. I just keep feeling like I'm never doing enough. And in some ways, I know I have ways to grow and being more present to her. But in other ways, I recognize this deeper need already present inside of her, this insatiable desire for more of something she can't even name. Longing and desire at a soul level, are central to the human experience. And spirituality, Rollheiser argues, is what we do with that desire, with that longing. And in that context, don't we understand a bit more this warning against idolatry? Our spirit, our soul is all tied up in it because what we do with our desire matters. What we do with our desire is a form of spirituality, whether we call it that or not. Isaiah knows this. Israel, you are longing, I know. But that fire that warms you and feeds you cannot satisfy the deeper longing you have. What gives you physical benefit of cooked food and the comfort of bodily warmth cannot nourish your soul in the way that you're looking for. This is what idol worship is. It's a hope that the things that we can touch, taste, see, smell, have, control, achieve, will fill us in a way that they just can't. It's confusing the gifts of God for a God. Another way to define idolatry, 
taking the incomplete joy of this world and building your entire life on it. We may not fashion a God out of wood, but how many earthen things have we built our lives around? The cars made of metal, our homes made of mortar and wood and brick, our screens made of titanium, iron, and aluminum. This passage is a warning about what a fine line it is to receive these things as gifts and look to them to bring us security, comfort, fulfillment, meaning. This is what it means to make something into a God. How many stories and examples do we have in our culture of people who appear to have it all and yet continue to hurt and struggle and experience loneliness and isolation, who continue to long? How much time and energy do we spend thinking about our stuff? And before we know it, it's more time, more energy, more of our life tied up in protecting or pursuing these things. But it's not just material, physical things that we can turn into a god. Maybe your Toyota isn't your idol. But do you have a certain vision for how you want your life to be? Or your kid's life? Do you have a certain vision for their childhood or adulthood? About how much time you spend ensuring, maybe controlling a certain future. Anything can be an idol, a relationship family, achievement, ambition, pleasure, health, fitness, physical beauty, money, success, sex, success in Christian ministry, peer approval, intellect, grades, your morality, a political or social cause. These are not bad things to care about or pursue, but they are inevitably failing things to build our life around. Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? But listen for what comes next. Remember these things, Jacob, for you, Israel, are my servant. I have made you, you are my servant, Israel. I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing for joy, you heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, you earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests and all your trees. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and is glorified in Israel. If longing, an inevitable part of the human experience, is our problem, the antidote is to remember Remember where the water is. Remember the source of what actually has the ability to satiate. Why remember? Because the longing, at least now in this life, on this side of the kingdom, is not fully fulfilled. We have glimpses of fulfillment. We have the promise of fulfillment in this in-between. We are in the in-between sketch of the after being laid over on the before, but different than something being dropped in like a home renovation. This fulfillment comes in the form of a person, in the form of a relationship with the triune God, the Father who is the source of sonship and daughtership, the Spirit who is the source of animating life, and the Son, who all of the New Old Testament points to as the source of forgiveness, healing, and union with God. 
One of the most central aspects of my faith journey has been seeking to understand why that longing still exists even after coming to faith through Jesus. And I think the answer is that God is not a product that we consume to make us feel better or to make our longing go away. God's a person. The promise of God is the promise of relationship, and relationship is dynamic and moving and living. This is God's promise to us. And so remembering the promises of God is the antidote to our soul's longing. The way that we experience God's promise is by remembering. And one of the most effective ways that we remember is through worship. This past Monday during a staff chapel, two staff members, Nia and Vivian, sung a song for the staff. Nia leads our worship online for our, and for our contemporary services in Lexington. And Vivian leads our deaf ministry. Because of her leadership and passion, we have been able to offer what has become a vibrant deaf ministry here at Grace, offering each Sunday our services translated in American Sign Language. By the way, if you or someone that you know would like to connect with our deaf ministry, you can email Vivian at, at vivianatgrace.org. Well, together they sang the song, He Knows My Name, with Nia singing and Vivian signing. It was a simple Zoom presentation in the middle of the day on a Monday, but here I was fighting back tears as I took in the words being sung by Nia and Vivian. Being in the middle of preparing for this sermon, in that moment, I realized that I was experiencing the power of remembering, remembering what it means to have been made and formed by God, known and loved and forgiven. It's one thing to know. It's another thing to know, to feel it. Nia and Vivian have graciously agreed to record their collaboration on this song for you today. So I'll come back and wrap things up after. But first, use this moment to worship and remember the truth that God promises to meet us with himself in our longing. I have a maker He formed my heart Before even time
Remembering the promises of God is the antidote to our soul's longing. How foolish does the pursuit of anything else seem in the face of what God promises to us, in his promise to meet us? One writer says, it's impossible for idolatry to get a foothold in a praising heart. In the face of the idolatry, we have an invitation to indifference to hold the gifts, the things, the people in our life loosely. And worship is the path towards indifference. One author says it like this. If you need to hear God, read through the Psalms, shut the door and put music on and sing until your heart and mind are captured completely by the love of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The longer you worship, the clearer your world will become. Worship until you can say with certainty, nothing matters to me more than you. Bid me and I will go anywhere. Do any service to the end of the earth. So that's my invitation to you this week. There's lots of ways to worship, but worship through song has been proven to have the ability to rewire our brains, allowing us to respond to life with greater peace, compassion, and contentment. So listen deeply and sing along to that song that speaks to your soul. Send songs that speak to you, to your friends or people in your circle or groups this week. Discover new songs on YouTube. If you don't know where to start, we actually have a music and worship playlist on our YouTube page. Chances are, in the course of any given week, you find yourselves in the ups and downs, on shoots and ladders. And God's invitation to us is to walk with him side by side, square by square. And contrary to the board game, life isn't about finishing first. It's about walking with God, discovering and experiencing God's purposes as you go, and finishing, whenever that day comes, hand in hand with your creator. Let me close in prayer. God, may we be like tree rooted by the streams of water, learning contentment in who you have made us to be. Cut through the noise of our heart to settle us. Drive out the fear that so often fuels us and point us to where the water for our souls is.
Amen.